Bibles with me, Genesis chapter 22. And we're moving along in the story of Abraham. Genesis 22. Now remember as a young man uh, hearing the governor of Minnesota, Jesse Ventura, make this statement. Organized religion is a sham and a crutch for weak-minded people who need strength in numbers. And when I heard that quote being broadcasted on the news, I felt, as we here in Cape Cod like to say, a little salty about it. I thought to myself, you know, that really does not seem to describe faith at all to me or the faith that I've experienced in my life. Now, Jesse Ventura, I mean, really good guy, really creative, right? Um, was not an originalist in a statement like this. In fact, you go back to someone like Sigmund Freud, the, the famous neurologist who founded the practice of psychoanalysis, and he taught essentially that God was nothing more than a, a psychological projection that served to shield people from a reality that they don't want to face and they can't cope with on their own. Essentially, faith is a crutch. Now, does that comment, faith is a crutch, hold up with biblical scrutiny, the way that the Bible talks about what faith looks like, what faith acts like, what faith is? If you make your way through the Old Testament, all of those stories, and there's many of them, are stories where God is calling upon his people to exercise faith. I wonder if... uh, Faith felt like a crutch in Exodus 14 when those freed Israelite slaves are pressed in between two sides. In one side you have the armies of Pharaoh. They're breathing down upon their neck and directly behind them is this huge natural barrier, the Red Sea. And what does God say in the midst of that chaos? He says, go forward. Can you imagine hearing that at that time? What do you want me to do here, God? Do you want me to just walk into the sea and drown? No. That doesn't sound much like a crutch. That sounds kind of like do or die. You get into another story, Joshua chapter 6. Remember that one, maybe. He tells Israel to walk around the city of Jericho six times. They're playing instruments. On the seventh day, they walk around the city seven times. And on the seventh time, they're called upon to shout with a loud voice and the walls of Jericho would come down. Now, if we're talking about here a psychological projection that is meant to make you cope, well, can you imagine it? Ah, Now that I've shouted at that wall, even though it didn't fall, I sure feel a lot better. God is good. I can't imagine that, can you? I cannot put myself into the shoes of those people and feel that way. Because if the wall doesn't go boom when they shout at that juncture, well then you walk away as a people disenfranchised, delusioned, defeated. You see, faith, as we are coming to find out, does not remotely resemble a crutch. It's kind of like calling a cat a dog. It's a great mischaracterization. Because faith is risky, and and it will pull you to trust God to the utter limits. 
It will take you to those places where if and only if God exists and only if God always keeps his promises will you be okay. And friends, that's risk without a safety net. That's living life and saying to myself, I better believe that God's always faithful. How can you know that? Well, this morning, as we look at the life of Abraham and we read a story in Genesis chapter 22, we read a story where God stretches his faith beyond human capacity. It's been about 40 years since that call out of Ur of the Chaldeans. In that moment, God had called him with little explanation and he made a promise to him, a land, a seed, a blessing. And, and if you would pursue me and follow me, then these things would come to you and to your descendants. And for 25 years, Abraham is seeking God, pursuing God, kind of chasing after a promise that seems too good to be true. I will give you a son in your old age. God delivers the promise, but along the way, Abraham demonstrates to us that there is ups and downs with faith. Sometimes he follows God. Sometimes, well, kind of does things his way. He goes down to Egypt. Isn't that true to life? There's moments in your life of faith where you, you rise to the occasion like a spiritual giant and other times where you shrink back and cower in fear like a spiritual gnat. All those years, all those ups and downs, all of those life events, and God is leading Abraham somewhere to this place we're at today, to Genesis 22, to his final exam. Look with me at the first two verses. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. You ever heard of a cold opening to a TV show? The, the show just starts before the credits even begin, and it's usually on a tension point. That's what we have going on here in Genesis 22. God says, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and sacrifice him. I want you to feel that tension down to your core. I want it to seep into the marrow of your bones. Forget the fact that you know this story. Forget the fact that you've read Genesis chapter 22 before or you heard it in a Sunday school class. I want you to check all of that out of your mind and just hear those words. Just hear God's demand upon you. You see, to Abraham, he knew what burnt offering meant. He knew it was a bloody process. First, you cut the animal's throat and you drain the lifeblood out of the animal. And then you dismember it. And then you take the parts of the animal and, and you lay them upon an altar and, and you set it ablaze. And that fire consumes every bit and morsel of that animal. He knew the process. He'd been through the process quite a few times as he offered up 
worship to the God that is now saying, do that to your son. If you have children, how much do you love them? Isn't it one of those things that's hard to put into words? Maybe, maybe the best way to say it is that we love our children with an aching parental love, the kind of love that hurts. We'd do anything for them. We would go to no length to see that they make it in this world. And not only make it, but we want them to excel and to exceed us as they go about life. I mean, think about throughout the duration of your kid's childhood, how many times you gave up sleep, right? And they're a baby. Those nights they got sick. The nights that you heard those cute little footsteps running down the hallway and saying, Mommy, can I come sleep in bed with you? Or even when they get a little bit older and now they're off on their own and sometimes you're not sleeping because you don't know where they are or what they're doing. And you feel for them. When they're happy, you're happy. When, when they're sad, you're crying with them. When they're experiencing pain, you feel the hurt of it too. In fact, you would... Remove pain from them. You would absorb it upon yourself for them if you could. God knows that. And God's saying to Abraham, take your son. And if that wasn't enough to be said, then he adds these three qualifications to it. Your only son. Not because he didn't have Ishmael as well, but because Isaac was the only son of promise. Isaac, who was the son that would come in their old age and bring renewed laughter into their world. Whom you love. God knows exactly what he's asking for here. He is asking for Abraham to sacrifice that which he treasures most in the world. Friends, crutches do not ask you to sacrifice that which you treasure most in the world. Faith, on the other hand, does. What do you treasure most? When you think about your treasures, they tend to fall into four categories. We can think of them in terms of our possessions, those, those tangible, valuable things. It could be your house, your car. It could be that boat that you'd been saving up for, that nest egg that you have for retirement, that marriage ring, that family heirloom, whatever it is. Now, some of us, we think to ourselves, well, I don't really, I don't really idolize possessions. I give my money to God. Friend, Giving your money to God is like Christianity 101. It's just basic obedience. What God's talking about here with your possessions is a, a right recognition and understanding where you say, God, everything that I have is yours because it really is his. And I'm just a steward of it. What about our vocation? Some of us treasure that. We look at it as beyond a nine-to-five job. It doesn't just put food on the table. There's a bit of our identity attached to what we do. To the degree that when a person loses their job, sometimes they wonder if I even have a reason to continue to exist. What about our dreams? 
That, that vision that you look on down the road and you can see clearly and you, you believe that this is something that if you could accomplish this in your life, then your life would be worthwhile. But as you're pursuing it along the way, you realize that you've given up too much to go after it. Or you make it there and even worse, you realize it wasn't as good as you thought it was going to be. What about our relationships? The, those people that mean the world to us, that parent that you could always depend upon, that son or daughter, that friendship that you've had for decades, a spouse, a romantic relationship. What is your treasure? You see, to really understand this passage, to get into Genesis 22, you have to be honest with yourself this morning. Is there something that you're afraid to let go of? Watchman Nee, a Chinese Christian leader who led the Church of China during the time of the Communist Cultural Revolution, in one of his books wrote that we tend to approach God like little children with open hands, begging for gifts. And God's good. He gives us all kinds of gifts as we continue to open up our hands, life, health, friends, money. Success, recognition, challenge, marriage, children, a nice home, a good job. So many provisions, provisions beyond provisions. And like little children, we we rejoice each time we extend our hand and we get that provision. And sometimes we take our provisions and and we compare them with our friends. But what happens in that moment once the hands are full and God comes to us and says, My child, I long to have fellowship with you. Reach out your hand and take mine. Well, now the dilemma comes. We think to ourselves, but I can't. I'd, I'd have to put this down in order to grab hold of your hand. And God comes and he says, put it down. It's okay. I, I made that. And, and I'm the one who's able to plentifully give to you. And we think and we come back to him, God, I, I, I just can't do that. You're asking me to give up too much here. Can't I do something else? And God comes back and he says... No, you have to. Jesus, the Son of God, the greatest teacher in history, captured the heart of the matter. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Also, friends, this is the final exam. Are you willing to surrender that which you hold most dearly? Sure, you've trusted God. You've followed him. But how deeply does the faith run? If he's to strip things away, your possessions, your dreams, your relationships, your work, even down to your very health, is God's sustaining presence going to be enough for you? Or is it faith plus something that's carrying you along in this world? God's saying this morning, if our relationship is going to work, you cannot have a hidden exception clause somewhere. Verse 1 tells us that God tested Abraham. The word test is central to the understanding of this passage. It means to ascertain the nature or quality of something. Uh, When you test, you're seeking to reveal imperfections or flaws or prove the strength of something. Warren Wiersbe shares, Our faith is not 
really tested until God asks us to bear what seems unbearable, do what seems unreasonable, and expect what seems impossible. Now be clear here, God knows your heart. He knows the future just as clearly as he knows the past. He's omniscient. He's all-knowing. So he takes us through tests, not because he's putting us there to say, oh, I wonder how they're going to respond to this. No, he presents tests to us to show us what he's been doing in us. And we learn from them. And sometimes we fail, and even when we fail, we keep learning. It's been said like this, when we stop learning, we stop growing. When we stop growing, we stop living. And Abraham's been doing a lot of growing, learning, and living over those 40 years. God has taken him to places where his faith has soared to heights that he could never have achieved without God in his life. But now comes the test. What are you willing to lay down? Abraham's approach to this test can be summed up with one word, obedience. In verses 3 through 10, we see that biblical obedience is modeled through Abraham's example. And this is one of the most beautiful models of what obedience looks like in all of the Bible. It begins in verse 3. We see that he obeyed immediately. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Notice that there's no indication of hesitation here. No sandbagging. He doesn't debate back and forth with God like he did in Genesis chapter 18. He's not begging. He's not pleading. He gets up early. He gets to it. Ever had that time where your alarm clock goes off in the morning and you just hit the snooze button? Not because you're tired. Because you don't want to face what you have to face today. Could be a meeting at work, a confrontation that you know needs to happen, a, a physical exam that you're not looking forward to. You know, we as creatures, when we know that we have to go through pain, we get incredibly slow and reluctant to move. But Abraham moves, he gets up. He knew God meant what he said. There's no question. Better start moving, better walk in obedience from the start. Now, he's not superhuman. I think that he's actually pretty numb in the midst of this. The, the text says that he saddles his donkey, and then he goes and he chops wood. It seems like he gets steps out of order. And I think you've been there before, too. As we read on, we see that he also obeyed continually. Look at verse 4. It tells us that he goes on a 50-mile journey from Beersheba to Mount Moriah, the place where that future temple would be in uh, Israel's history. Second Chronicles 3 tells us that. It takes him three days to make that 50-mile journey. Three days. Three days is a long time to think. God didn't tell him to be impulsive here. Any of us can say, oh, God told me to do something. I'm just going to run out and go do it right now. No, 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 no. Three days. 
God gives him to go into his thought world to consider the implication. How is this going to work out? Why does it seem like God is sabotaging his own promise? How could this possibly lead to anything good? I don't know what Abraham was thinking, but i got to tell you that this aged man in his mind must have had many thoughts. And those 50 miles must have been the slowest, most labor-intensive, mentally 50 miles that he'd ever walked in his life. So what was going through his mind? Well, as we come to the foot of Mount Moriah, Abraham opens his mouth and he demonstrates that he also obeyed because he believed. We see two different faith statements. First, verse 5. He says to his servants, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come to you again. Notice the pronouns. We. First person plural will worship. We. First person plural will come back again. He didn't say, we will go worship and I will come back. Granted, that would have been a suspicious statement. No, I don't think he was saying it for that reason. I think he was saying it as we look at God's word and understand it because he believed that Isaac was coming back with him, regardless of what happens at the top of the mountain. Hebrews eleven seventeen explains this to us. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. You see, in that moment, God had given him a precious vision, a precious understanding of something that he had never done in history before, the idea of resurrection. That's what faith does. Faith takes you to heights that you've never been to before. And Jesus said this of Abraham, your father Abraham rejoiced that when he, saw, would, he rejoiced that he would see my day, he saw it and he was glad. Wow. But don't step out of the tension either. Put yourself in his shoes. Walk the path with him. Strap those sticks to the back of your son and, and watch him kind of skip up the path in joy because he's on a special outing with his father. Feel the knife in your hands. Feel your, your reticence to want to continue, but you know that you need to keep going. Think of yourself on that summit, raising the knife up, and striking down in center mast into the sun that you love. How do you feel? What are you thinking about in terms of questions that you have for God right now? Well, as they're making that trip, Isaac asks a logical question. He breaks through the silence. Isaac says to his father, my father, and he says, here I am, my son. You hear the Relational love there, my father, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Where is it? This isn't how we normally do things. This doesn't make sense. Abraham's response in verse 8 is one of the most 
faith-filled responses in all the Bible. God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. Not only did he believe that they would both go up and down that mountain, but he also believed that God would provide in some way in this situation. See, friends, sometimes we do not know where, we do not know when, we do not know how, we do not even have a a reasonable explanation for why. Our job is not to have all of our our questions answered. There's nothing wrong with having questions and, and trying to seek explanations for those questions. But let me tell you, you can always have more questions and keep asking more questions. So at some point, it is our job to look at the faithful character of God and say to ourselves, you know, I know who He is, I know what He's done, and I'm going to trust and obey Him. And that's what Abraham does, verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Notice no description of a fight. Isaac's probably 15. He's probably nearly a grown man. He probably could have overcome Abraham. Somehow, his father's pattern of obedience had, had transferred down to the son. So he gets on top, climbs on the altar. And as he does this, Abraham, well, the final thing we see is he obeys completely. He must have looked deeply into the boy's eyes and unsheathed the knife, swinging his arm upward, just about to thrust down. Verse 10. This Abraham, Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Abraham! Abraham! I mean, those words must have been like music to the patriarch's ears. They must have been the sweetest noise that he'd ever heard in all of his life. Verse 12 Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, for me. In that moment, just as he was about to act in complete obedience, Abraham passed the final exam. God allowed the drama to play out to the moment where he would reveal the quality of his faith. You know that God takes us into places like that. He's not going to ask you to follow him in theory. He's not going to ask you to give him what you don't treasure or what you no longer care for. No, there are times where God is going to say, let go of it and grab hold of my hand. And in this moment, Abraham demonstrated that he would rather have God's hand than his only son whom he loved. James 2. Don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham was shown to be right with God by his actions when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see, his faith and his actions worked together. His actions made his faith complete. That's what faith looks like. Crutches don't look like that. Psychological buffers don't look like that. No. Faith is a relationship with the God of the universe. And here's the significant reality about your faith. 
The God who tests you to see if you will walk with him hand in hand is also the God who, when you do, provides for all of your needs. And that's what we see in this story. Verse 13, And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide. As it is said to this day, On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. The Lord will provide. The Hebrew there is something that might be familiar to you. Jehovah Jireh. It could also be translated, the Lord will see to it. And as we see in this text, he doesn't just see to it, he adds to it. Look at verse 16. The angel of the Lord says, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. When Abraham let go and took God's hand, the Lord who will see to it replaced what he had lost with something better. That's what God does. He meets us in that place. When we respond to him in faith, we realize that we get so much more. Now, I understand that a statement like that can be hard to process when a person experiences something like serious tragedy in their life. See, on May 21st, 2008, Christian recording artist Stephen Curtis Chapman experienced something like this. He and his family suffered devastating loss. You might have seen this story. Their five-year-old daughter was playing in the driveway, Maria. She was adopted to them. And she was struck and killed when Chapman's 17-year-old son was backing his family's SUV out of the driveway. And think of it. You're not just talking about here the loss of a daughter to you. You're also talking about a son who is now probably going to experience serious psychological trauma as he deals with the guilt of this event. After much prayer and counsel, Chapman returned to touring and in one of the concerts months later. He opened with a familiar song by Matt Redman, Blessed be your name. It was the first song that he sang on May 21st in that moment when uh, he saw his little girl and knew that she was going to be with Jesus. Even when he wasn't sure that he'd be able to sing again, he sang that song. As I sang this song, it wasn't a song, it was a cry, a scream, a prayer. Chapman explained to an audience of over 5,000, I found an amazing comfort and peace that surpasses all understanding. Chapman also shared that after Maria's death, he, he went back into the, the songs that he had written and he re-examined them and reprocessed them through the lens of this experience and asked himself, can I still sing this better yet? Can I still believe this? One example was a song, Yours, and in that, as he processed it through the lens of the death of his daughter, the song came into sharper focus for him. In this song, in particular, I had to come to a new realization. He said, there's not an inch of creation that God doesn't look at and says, that's mine. And as a result of that realization, he added a new verse to the song, yours. 
I've walked the valley of death's shadow, so deep and dark that I could barely breathe. I've had to let go of more than I could bear, and I've questioned everything that I've believed. Still, even here in this great darkness, a comfort and a hope comes breaking through as I can say in life or death, God, we belong to you. But not my job, God, but God says, that's, not, that's my job. But God, not, not my friendships that I've been cultivating over the years, but God says, those are my friendships. But God, not my church that feels really comfortable to me, but God says, that's my church. But God, not, 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 not my son or my daughter, but God says, that's my son or daughter. God, not my house, that's my house. God, not my mission. God says, that's my mission. It belongs to me. I give it to you as a free gift, but your life is not about those things. Your life is about your relationship with me. And it's only when you lose your grip on those things and not because God pries your fingers off of it that you will see the Lord who will see to it is waiting to give you more. Well, what is more? Eternal life is more. God's infinite presence in your life is more. An ability to go about life with those things, but not being so tied down by those things that you actually function as God meant you to function is more. God knows just what you need. He knows just how to provide for you. He will care for you. As you think through that, some of you are just, you're in this inner struggle. I don't know if I can do that. I, I don't know if I can lose my grip on that treasure that I'm clinging on to right now. How do I know that God's going to be faithful in the midst of it? A friend, I ask you to think about another son who walked the road of Mount Moriah some 2,000 years ago. You see, this Isaac did not have a bundle of sticks tied to his back. He had the beam of a cross upon his bloodied shoulders as he endured the cruel flogging of Roman soldiers. And, and this son, the father didn't have to prove that he was willing to offer him up. No, this father actually offered him up for us. We feel the weight of the drama in Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a, a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. And Jesus would endure that physical and spiritual and psychological death for you and for me. And in that moment when, when the father had placed his son upon the cross, there was no one there to cry out, Stop! Don't harm the child. There was no ram to serve as a substitution because he was the substitution. His life for your life is what the Bible says. And in that moment, he faced the judgment of God so that we could be saved. The cross was God's ultimate exam. But we didn't have to face that exam. 
Jesus faced it for us. And he did it splendidly. He was sinless. He obeyed the Father's will completely. And he laid down his life for you. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In Romans 8, Paul says this, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Friends, have you trusted Jesus? Have you placed your faith in him? If, if you haven't done that, well, life really hasn't started for you yet. The Bible says that when you trust Jesus, you enter into new life, abundant life, revolutionized life, transformed life. And I want to invite you to that this morning. The Bible says that if you trust him, if you believe, if you place your faith in him, you will be saved. We bow your heads with me in a word of prayer. And as I close uh, this sermon, I'm closing with a prayer written by A.W. Tozer in his book, The Pursuit of God. The, the language is a little dated, but it is worthy of our attention. Father, I want to know thee, but my cowardly heart fears to give up its toys I cannot part with them without inward bleeding, and I do not try to hide from thee the terror of the parting. I come trembling, but I do come. Please root from my heart all those things which I have cherished so long and which have become a part of my living self, so that thou mayest enter and dwell there without a rival. Then shalt thou make the place of thy feet glorious. Then shall my heart have no need of the sun to shine in it, for thyself wilt be the light of it, and there shall be not night there. In Jesus' name, amen.